Closing the Digital Divide, the podcast dedicated to creating meaningful conversations and sharing valuable insights from industry leaders, policymakers, equipment manufacturers, and others on closing the digital divide. I'm your host, Charles Thomas, and together we'll explore policies, challenges, triumphs, and innovative solutions that are reshaping the digital landscape. Join us as we shine a light on the importance of equal access, digital literacy, and the transformative impact technology can have on our unserved and underserved communities. Get ready to be inspired, informed, and empowered as we work towards closing the digital divide one episode at a time. Welcome to the conversation that's shaping our future. This is the Digital Divide. Today, I am pleased to welcome Mr. Jay Harmon, Managing Director of Borderhawk. Jay, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. All right. So, Jay, my first question that I ask everyone who are the first-time visitors on the show is what is the digital divide and why is it so important that we have it close? Absolutely. It's a good question. So to get to start with an example, I, I work with a rural hospital out in the middle of, uh, you know, nowhere. Right. So it's rural. Mm-hmm. And one of the big challenges that this hospital has is, is even just obtaining satisfactory bandwidth from a commercial perspective. So this is not a residence or a household. This, this is a commercial organization. But surrounding that hospital is 10,000 veterans. Uh, it's 40 miles to the next hospital. Anyone that needs assistance from that hospital, uh, from a telehealth perspective, uh, or from an educational perspective, or to schedule an appointment perspective, or to transmit X-ray images perspective, are all dependent, right, on the quality of the internet capability that's available to that rural area. And the hospital's no different than anyone else. They can only obtain what the local providers can provide them. And so, so consequently, the digital divide, from our perspective. Uh, has a, a lot of uh, manifestation out, out out into the world, and the further you move away from urban development and metropolitan areas, the more likely you're going to run into this digital divide, and it impacts everybody in that space, because there is this digital economy that's occurring, right? That that the entire world is participating in, and those people who live and operate in areas where there is not quality internet, um, they are they have less sufficient means to participate in that digital economy. And so, and so consequently, if they want to go to school, you have a house, you have a house with four people in it. Um, one person might be working from home. One person might be going to school uh, as an adult. Uh, two people might be going to school as children, um, uh, you know, in some kind of, especially during COVID, you know, when we saw how that impacted us. Sure, sure. Uh, and so, and so you've got a situation where at my house, I'm, I'm unserved. I live in an unserved area. My my bandwidth is about 700k, not not a meg, not 100 gig. It's 700k. So if we were in that boat and we were trying to work from home and we had children trying to go to school, we would not be able to accomplish that simultaneously, right? We we would have to to figure out how to share time, um, you know, on our internet. And 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 so consequently, what does that turn into? It means that we cannot participate in the digital economy that's blooming. It's it's blossoming around the world, but it isn't blossoming around the world for the rural uh, communities. And the rural communities are um, falling behind in that space. So so people still have to travel into metropolitan areas if they want to 
do things that are you know require a high speed high quality internet and so it so it creates disadvantage for a, for a number of people and it, it's irrespective of of almost any other you know demographic measure you might have it's just whoever lives in that space is impacted right and so that's why it's important you know if you're going to call 911 you you want you, you and you're on voice over ip you want that call to go through you don't you don't want to be blocked right if your power goes out you still want to be able to have access to your cellular um right and so these are different technologies and and serving different purposes but they they converge in the way that people interact with that and so you know there's there's elements that have, the digital divide impacts us all uh and it impacts those that are living in these unserved underserved areas even even more and the and the, the one of the challenges is um it, it, the people that live in the metropolitan area have no idea what that means e exactly. even even the mechanical and physical equipment providers to the rural broadband or to the broadband industry don't understand what that means you know I, i've been in sessions where people said like experts said that it's a myth that somebody's unserved and i'm like would you like to see my bandwidth uh on <laughs> my speed check right let's do yeah, it right yeah. now because because you're gonna you're gonna have a you're gonna have a heart attack and wonder why this is happening and uh and i can tell you that the only way i can get it is through a satellite there is no fiber to the to anywhere nearby you know that i can connect to and so we're hoping to see that change we're hoping that this 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 come upcoming all these grants for arpa and and ardoff and bead and and all these work together um to help eliminate that digital divide and we're encouraged that that that's going to happen and i'm certainly looking forward to it as an unserved uh you know <laughs> Uh, member of the community, uh, when that happens, you know, we'll, we're going to feel like we, we won a victory. Right. So it's, it's, it's really a quality of life mm -hmm. um, application that many, many of our um, communities are not able to participate. Um, uh, you know, we shared, we talked a little bit before we came on, um, you know, I, I lived in one of those areas and, and, and really the uh, impetus for me moving out was so that I could get online because I, I had just gotten a job in technology and right. uh, it was it was a challenge, a big challenge. So yeah, uh, absolutely quality of life. And I agree with everything you said. And we're going to talk about one of those programs that was recently announced. Uh, the allocation for that was recently announced, and that is the B program. Back in um, 2021, 2020, 2021, in response to the SolarWinds, Microsoft Exchange, and Colonial Pipeline incident, President Biden, on May 12th, 2021, signed an executive order 14028 to improve the nation's cybersecurity. Our topic today is the cybersecurity and supply chain risk management requirement in the BEAD program. Um, and so my first question to you, Jay, is what does the BEAD NOFO require when it comes to cybersecurity and su supply chain risk management? Absolutely. So the BEAD NOFO is a pretty significant document in and of itself. It's 98 pages long. On page 70, you'll find the, 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 the relationship to the cybersecurity and supply chain risk management. And so, and from a cybersecurity perspective, it, it, it essentially says that a bead recipient, an award recipient, it will uh, must attest to the fact that they have um, an operating risk management 
cybersecurity risk management program that reflects the current version of NIST CSF, the cybersecurity framework, which is which is currently 1.1. Um, and then from the supply chain standpoint, it, it lists um, 8276 and uh, 800 which, you know, if you take those two documents on their face, 800-161 is 370 pages, I believe. So, so there's a lot of information to digest in those two callouts. Um, but, but that's that's where you find the information, and and essentially what is required from the supply chain standpoint is that you have a a, a cyber a, a risk management program based on 800-161's formula, if you will, for how you're going to manage the risk associated with your supply chain. So I'm going to speak as a as a small uh, ISP operator. I can honestly tell you that I've never looked at those two documents. Yeah. Uh, concerning supply chain risk and and cybersecurity, has NTIA put out guidance regarding um, supply chain risk management? Well, they well they have they they've they've put out several documents of guidance along the way, and so so if we go back to the Prior to the uh, Executive Order 14028, there, there was a there was another one that created NIST CSF in the first place, and it was Executive Order 13 something 56. I, I should recall it off the top of my head, but it, it was really uh, four or so years prior, and it and it was what initiated NIST CSF 1.0, and 14028 initiated uh, 1.1, and so so it's going to continue to upgrade. 2.0 is on the on the table. And but it's not it's not it's not released yet, so it's not the current version. And so, um, when we when we look back at, at at those documents and what did NTIA produce, um, the whole industry has produced information about this NTCA NTIA, um, and they and they have some documentation on their um, Broadband USA site that will direct you to some guidance. Um, and and there's been hard work that's been put together by a Telecom Working Group Four, which they produce a. Uh, as they call CRISC, and um, and the NTCA, which which did produce some guidance. The challenge with both of those documents that are on that page um, on Broadband USA site uh, isn't that it's good, not good information. It absolutely is. Um, the challenge is that it was generated prior to the NOFO, and so there was a time when we weren't that worried about the supply chain like we are today. Um, people in cybersecurity have been worried about the supply chain for a long time, but but the industry wasn't that focused on the supply chain uh, across small business. Well, in that and now in the in this case, the supply chain is pretty significant, right? It's coming from all over the world. We see something stamped USA, made in the USA, but you open it up and it's got components that are made all over the world, and and those different components work in you know in in ways that you might not expect. And so so that's one element of supply chain. The other is is it available? If I'm if I have a critical component, you know, is it available? And so the point of all that is that the NTCA and the NTIA's documents both came out prior to the release of the NOFO. And so the guidance that they have publicly made, at least that I've seen, there may be documents that I haven't seen. Um, if you were to follow them, you would essentially end up with a program that that sort of bypassed supply chain. And then, and then, if, from a bead perspective, you wouldn't have that program in place. And so, so you know, part of our mission has been to kind of raise the raise the the alarm, if you will, to people to be aware that that supply chain requ requirement exists, 
and and we we have we have chatted with commerce and we have chatted with NTCA and 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 all everyone is taking all of this seriously and working towards you know ensuring that the communication that they're putting out to the market is accurate. Um, but if you don't do this every day, you might not realize the the implications of some of these guidance documents would lead a person to, and then it could be insufficient. At, at the end of the day, and they and they believe that they were sufficient, um, but like I said, in this case, supply chain might be left out of some original guidance or previous guidance, and now they're caught, you know, behind the beat eight ball, so to speak, because they, you know, they didn't they didn't have that in place. So so we're trying to make sure that doesn't happen. I, I'm I'm listening to you go through all of this, and. Uh, again, I'm I'm looking at this from a uh, from a smaller, uh, probably mid-size, and even some large ISP. It seems like a real heavy lift in order to qualify for this. And and I understand um, that we need to have these, especially on the cybersecurity part and the supply chain risks as, as well. We need to have these in place. Uh, how is a small ISP going to be able to? accomplish these goals you know i have a saying I, I sometimes get accused of having a lot of them um but one of them is start where you are use what you have and do what you can right and so and so we've we've gone through uh and there's nothing magic when i say we've gone through we, we but we've looked at the nist requirements and the supply chain requirements and we've identified 12 that an organization ought to really look at prior to submit even submitting an application um and they're really they're really um on the assessment and govern you know the initial governance side of things so in other words do we have have we conducted as an assessment of ourselves um nist is pretty straightforward now it looks complicated because there's five core functions uh, what people refer to as the identify protect detect respond recover um and and then there's 23 categories of information that are fall out of those five core functions and then there's 108 subcategories that fall out of the 23. so when you look at that you're like it could be overwhelming but if it really is it really doesn't have to be right so so what we said to the industry is look there's 12 that you probably ought to just do right now it you can do it you don't you don't have to have outside help you might want outside help you've got people that can do it it's a straightforward process but it takes some time and energy and focus um once you've got those 12 now you're in a position to to look at at the way that the nist structures its process they call it a the initial step is a current as is assessment of 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 what you're doing so what what am i actually doing against the 108 and and you're going to have a yes no or partial answer right around that you're going to bring some people in your team together your it team your accounting team your hr team right you're all going to have to participate um but you're going to document that and then and then there's a, a an asset based risk inventory uh, a risk assessment that must be considered and and you know you could take the approach that we're going to do an assessment against every piece of asset equipment that we have both internal IT and external OT um I wouldn't recommend that not not at this stage um I would recommend doing a, a criticality analysis you know so so from a business perspective what do we rely on to, to deliver the services that we have to deliver and I would focus more on on those assets, and they could be people that work for you. They could be um, 
processes that you put into place, and they could be technology, right? And and they will be all of those. They, so it, it's not a technology. This is not an IT issue. Um, if you find yourself focusing on your IT, you're going to miss the boat. And mm-hmm. and so, but once you've done that, once you've done those two things, and you've looked at the uh, the criticality of my my inventory of assets, which are people, processes, and technologies, and I like really thought my way through it. Well, now I can produce a target. And once I need, once I produce a target profile, which is again the 108 subcategories, I'm what I need to do now is go. What do, what do I want my target to be? If I'm the if I'm you, I'm the leader of a of an I, small ISP. What do I want my target to be? And and we've identified about 34, 30, 34 of those that are we call high. So the first 12 uh, that I mentioned we call immediate. Um, you should do them now. Um, the next 34 you should you should do them prior to expecting to receive funding because this is what it's going to look like. You, these these 48 are what it's going to look like that, to have in place um, a response so that you can turn around and say um, authentically that I have a um, cybersecurity risk management program that reflects NIST CSF 1.1 in place and operating in my organization. So so it's you don't have to look at all 180 eight having an answer on the on the you have to have a plan and that plan you've developed by going through that current as is the asset inventory and the target and when you've when you when you walk through the target then you produce what we refer to as a poem a plan of action and milestones and what what occurs in a plan of action and milestones is the organization says i'm going to allocate resources and time frames to to us how we're going to resolve these remaining 34 items, let's call it. It, it. it might be five items, depending on what they already had in place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But but of the 48, you know, or so immediate and high that we've we've called out, um, you know, let's say they had none, they didn't have any. Okay, so there's 48 on that POAM p- p- plan of action and milestone that they're going to put together and say, well, here's the six people that we have and the two contractors and our MSP. Here's how we're going to finish out this, and we're going to assign responsibilities, we're going to assign timeframes, and we're going to allocate resources. When you've done that, you, you're you're in a great position to argue that I have implemented a plan, I'm operating that plan, and it reflects NIST CSF 1.1. And then and then the, the way that we kind of put it all together, you can absorb the supply chain risk management into that same process. Um, and, and there's a little bit more to it, but but essentially that, you know, start where you are, use what you have uh, and do what you can is not a bad model when you start looking at this, because really, you know, you're not going to do it all at once. It's going to take you time, which is a significant element that I think is overlooked right now by most of the industry. When we work with clients, most of the time we tell them it's 18 to 36 months. So if we look at the day is June 30 and the the applications and the funding may be available by the end of March or June. So we got nine to 12 months. Well, we're already, if it takes 18 to 36, we have a problem, right? So, right. so now we're going to say, okay, what is the, and I hate to use the word, you know, minimally viable activity that we could do. I was going to ask that question. But, but that's what we've broken down into our immediate and high model to take that into consideration. So, so that an organization can arguably defend if they went through this process, that they can that they can attest 
that they've got a, a plan that they're implementing, it's in place, it's operational, and then they got to continue to mature it, right? So over time, you're going to address, because remember, I mentioned 44 or so of the 108, or 48 right. or so right. of the 108. Over time, you're going to address these other uh, medium and low priorities. Mm -hmm. You can't not address them, but you don't have to address them to implement your plan. That's implementation. The, the next step is operational. So is there a is there a baseline of implementation that will qualify for uh, the 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 pro the uh, the the B program or I mean how 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 much how much of that do we have to have in place in order mm -hmm. to say to check that box at at the at the time that you expect to receive funding the the way that we've analyzed it and and understood it and bounced it off of others in the industry, especially the various associations that we've been talking about. There's there's 44 to 48 of the 108 that need to be in place. Um, and, and so when I say in place, okay, some of that just means conducted. When you conduct mm -hmm. the as-is assessment, it's it's done, right? It's not something you got to continue to maintain initially, but then you've got to do the, the um, risk assessment, and then you have to target, build your target. Well, once you're once you've moved through those, those are assessment activities. Now you take that information and you move into implement. What am I gonna, what am I going to do about what I learned compared? Consider CSF 1.1 a picture on the outside of a thousand piece puzzle box, right? If if I didn't have that picture, I it, it would be a lot harder sure, to put sure. this uh, thousand pieces together, and and it'd be very unsatisfying. Right. If they were just all the, right. the backside of the of the document uh, of the puzzle. But with the with the picture and that's what that's what CSF 1.1 provides you is a picture of the puzzle. So here's a picture of the puzzle. Here's what I need to have in place. Um, and in this case, we're talking about prior to funding. And so so you have to have an operating program that reflects in this CSF 1.1. That's about 48 items or so that uh, you should have conducted or have in place. and and when you do that, you still have to have ongoing um, operations, which th that's where you're going to run into the medium and the and the low uh, scenarios. Uh, and so, so some of those are things like um, how we, how will you respond respond and recover to an incident? Well, you really might not know how to do that until you've actually put put into place some of the the items in the immediate and the high because you won't have the ability to detect. Uh, adequately, um, you know, we don't want detection to be the FBI shows up and says we found all your data of all your clients on the dark web, right? right That's not right. detection. Uh, I mean, I guess it is in one way, but it's it's a really slow manner and it creates a lot of risk. We want to, we would prefer to see detection be something operating in the organization that tells you what normal looks like. So when something not normal happens, it flags you and it lets you know. And there's lots of ways to do that. And uh, and so. Um, but but you wouldn't necessarily do that first. You couldn't put the, you wouldn't really put detection and recovery into place prior to understanding what your what assets that you really have that you need to monitor and understand and know what normal looks like. And so so the sequence then becomes important, and that's why the immediate we have this broken down in immediate, high, medium, and low, and then and then out of scope. There are some things that are going to be out of scope for various organizations, and we won't know sure, what they sure. are until we deal with until that organization looks at itself, right? So, you know, the, the announcement 
you know, President Biden made made the announcement just uh, a, a few days ago uh, from this uh, from the taking of of this show, um, and there's a lot of people excited about it. Sure, um, there are a lot of uh, threat actors out out there that that got just as excited. I'm sure that's right. That's right. Um, and they're using some fairly sophisticated tools, right, to um, to infiltrate. And as you put it, uh, put it to a point to where the FBI is showing up at your at your desk um, or or at your office. Now we have, you know, we have an IT guy and and he takes care of all of our security. But based on everything that you've said here, it seems like there needs to be a new level of of uh, cybersecurity understanding, implementation, operation. Does does the B program have it, are there any eligible funds as a part of the BEAD program that could be used to train? So, so we've asked this question for, to, from a lot of different people. Um, there, there is an element of, a, of in, in ARPA and ARDOF that, that we suspect will be something of, like that in BEAD where there's a percentage and it's fairly small. It's a couple, two, two and a half percent of the, of the eligible, uh, of the funding amount can be used for administration. But that administration is a lot of different things, at, right? And so it's it's grant management, it's grant compliance, it's it's grant administration. I mean, you know, there's there's a number of elements to it. So, um, putting the program together and and building it out and and saying that you can turn around and and charge back is not something that we've seen. Now, I'm also not saying it doesn't exist. Is it, but it is one of those things that we've asked for clarity on. Uh, and and we haven't we haven't gotten clarity specifically on can other the other than cybersecurity training which appears to be called out and you may very well be able to um, do some training um, uh, costs associated with it but we're not saying you can't we're we're just saying it's unclear at this point from our understanding of reading the NOFO and having these conversations that um, that you can actually charge back the services associated with developing the security requirements to the grant itself. I know the eligible entities can do some things like that, like the state agencies can, but I didn't see that percolate down to the uh, rural telco or the sub grantee, as they call it. Sure, uh, so, sure. so it's a great question, still under um, investigation. Well, Jay, you have given us a boatload of information. Um, I'd like to, and we're just about out of time, but I'd, I'd like to uh, perhaps get you back um, and let's do another show that we actually walk through that process. Sure. I think that would be very helpful for our, our listeners. I know it would be helpful for me and the other um, ISPs that are out there. Tell us a little bit about uh, Borderhawk and, and some of the things that you guys do to kind of help this process. Absolutely. So as a company, we've been we formed in 2008. We're just north of Atlanta. We've got we've got people spread all over the country, and and for years we've done a lot of work in all the way out in Alaska. So from Alaska to South Florida, the Northeast United States, you know we've we've been around, and we primarily work in the in critical infrastructure space. So so that translates to rural telco, rural hospitals, not rural hospitals only, but healthcare, and then um, power generating entities, state and local governments. Uh, and Department of Defense subcontractors because they have a very, very rigid model that's, um, if we think NIST CSF is hard, 
they they have they have one called 8671 uh, that is 306 objectives versus the the 108 uh, much more granularity and a third party audit required so they're going through a lot of challenges as well but it's the same premise right and so the premise mm -hmm. is is uh how do we help organizations we're, we're not your msp we're, we're not the company that comes sell you a firewall comes help you set up your network we have partners that do that and they're great um, but what we do is, from a strategy perspective, help you identify, like, what does security mean to me as a company, right? Based on my contracts, based on the regulations that, that are mandated to me, um, based on the type of business that I do, what are the, what, you know, help you understand, you know, what is the threat landscape against my organizational type? And then we help build programs. And this CSF is a programmatic, out, uh, you know, outcome or effort that they're not mm -hmm. going to tell you how you know, how they're going to tell you what to do. This CSF is good at telling you what to do. And it's, and it's not bad. I mean, it's, it's a good program. The federal they don't government you, is good at telling us what to do. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but they don't tell you how to do it. And so, right. and so that's kind of what we do. We, we come in and help interpret your business and your mission and your objectives. You know, it, it would be easy to say that uh, gross profit is your objective, but that's not everybody's objective. Right. Sure. And, sure. and so we want to come in and help figure out what is, what is the actual objective of the organization? Um, understand what industry they're really in and what are the targets and threats associated uh, with that industry against them. And then, and then help them build this programmatic, enduring departmental-like um, environment where they have information security that they, can, that, that, that they can manage no matter what compliance requirements come down the pipe. Because essentially this bead document is producing a regular a type of a regulatory or contractual mandate that's that that they're having to, and that's compliance sure Com you sure. can be wholly compliant and a hundred percent not secure right and so we we don't want our clients existing in that space where they are absolutely compliant and completely insecure so so we look at everything from a security perspective first and then and then if we build a good security program we can derive most of the compliance uh, mandates out of that program. Um, and in the cases where there's something really specific, we'll have to address that, you know, but, um, but in this case, like in bead, every state could potentially have a slightly different interpretation of what they want the sub grantees in their state to do. And that'll, that'll be seen time will tell. Right. But, um, mm -hmm. but, but, but for those uh, MSPs are, I'm sorry, sub grantees that cross multiple state lines, even if it's just two, because they happen to straddle a, a state line, um, they could end up with two different types of programs or reporting programs based on on that. Um, so so that would be part of something that we would help them figure out, like, how do you build one program that satisfies both? And uh, and and then, of course, in the state that you're in, you may also have privacy laws. You may also have a number of other things that that are supported by your security program if you consider them. And if you don't consider them, then you have to do something completely separate. And that's we we, we try to minimize that. You know, one program that sure that, that does it all. <laughs> yeah, it works. Well, uh, Jay, again, thank you. Um, and again, uh, uh, promise me that we'll get back again because I want to go through uh, this process um, in, in a little more detail. Uh, I think it'd be uh, uh, I think it'd be a great um, great education and and information uh, that you guys uh, that you guys are doing. Thank you again for being with us today. We've come to the end of another great episode. I want to thank Jay for joining us today.
Um, you got to remember, folks, the power to bridge the digital divide lies with each one of us. It is all of our responsibility to champion digital inclusion, advocate for equal access, and to embrace all the technologies, all of technology's potential to take us there. By doing this, we can create a world where everyone has a chance to thrive in the digital age. We appreciate you guys for listening in today. You can hear more episodes on Closing the Digital Divide at ctdd.castos.com or wherever you get your podcast. Have a great day. Thank you.